0: What's going on? It is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to hang out with Sin Kane over Zoom video. Sincane was born in London, uh, moved to Sudan for a few years. His dad was taking classes at uh, Boston College, uh, so his family moved out to Boston, and then he spent a handful of years in Utah and Most of his formative years, then from like 13 on uh, in Ohio, lived in Kent, talked about how he got into music, started on drums when he lived in Utah, sat on a drum kit and immediately fell in love with it. When he got to Kent, he was going out to Cleveland every weekend for a handful of years, just checking out different shows. He eventually started a band while he was in high school. He talked about getting the opportunity to play drums for one of his favorite bands he ended up moving to Columbus to go to Ohio State. While at Ohio State, he was getting opportunities to play with a bunch of bands that he grew up listening to. Caribou was the one that really started his uh, career as far as getting to play with his favorite artists. Then He did shows with uh, Montreal and Yeser, uh, uh, just a bunch of bands, all while forming Sincane. Sincane talked about some of the successes he had, getting signed to City Slang Records, eventually playing on David Letterman and Conan O'Brien. He's also done a Tiny Desk concert. And we really dive into his new album, which is really influenced on getting an advanced degree in music. He said he had this relationship with the teacher where he'd go in and present a song that he loved and they'd break it down and kind of see how that song's put together, like Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie. And then he'd be able to kind of implement some of that structure into the songs he was writing uh and he's got this new album coming out on april 5th where a lot of this album was written kind of around that class and getting that advanced degree it's called we belong he also talks about a big tory's doing as well so make sure to check out the interview you can watch the video version of the interview on our facebook page and youtube channel at bringing it backwards it'd be amazing if you subscribe to our youtube channel like us on facebook And follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at bringing back pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify, Apple Music, Google Podcasts, we would love it if you follow us there as well and hook us up with a five-star review. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Sin Kane. Well, I'm Adam. I appreciate you doing this again. Thank you so much. Of course. Of course. Um, This is a podcast about you. Uh, in your journey in music. And we'll talk about the uh, record you have coming out in April and, you know, the newest song, which I love, is great. Uh, How Sweet Is Your Love? And even uh, Everything Is Everything that you put out before that. So I'm excited to kind of Thank hear you. Thank you very story. much. Thank you so much. Awesome. So um, born in, were you born in London? Is that what I saw?
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. How long did you live there? And t- tell me about that. Uh, my father was a diplomat. Sudanese diplomat. So we lived in in uh London in the UK. Mm-hmm. They lived in the UK for a, a little bit of time while he was working at the Sudanese embassy and I was born in 1983 and they had they headed back to Sudan I think maybe a year later. Um and before our, my family emigrated to the United States in 1989, we would spend summer holidays and like any kind of holidays in in London. So as a kid, I remember going back quite a bit. Um, but I don't, re- I wouldn't really call London or the UK home at all. You know, I didn't really stay, uh, there at a time where I was like really cognizant of, of it being like my home, you know, who's just kind of this place that I was born. And then we'd come back and, you know, go to Regents Park and hang out and, you know, do that kind of thing. But, um, but it, when I go back now as an adult, it, it definitely feels like a part of who I am. Yeah. You you said, uh, Sudan, were you going, did you move there as well early? Yeah. So my family's from Sudan. So I, I, um, I was born in London and uh-huh. my father went back and was working for the Sudanese government in Sudan. Um, and all of my family, I mean, none of my family really is there now because of the, the war and just kind of the terrible sure. situation happening right now. They've all had to flee, but, um, uh, we lived there until 1989. There was a military coup that overthrew the government. My father was af- affiliated with that government. So, um, oh, man. Yeah, we happened to be in Boston, Massachusetts, of all places. My dad was studying at Boston University at the time while he was still affiliated with the Sudanese government. And um we applied for asylum and emigrated to the United States and uh, spent, I think, starting from... Summer before seventh grade or eighth grade, I think, every summer in Sudan until I was about 24. So, wow. Yeah. So it was kind of. You
0: were going back and forth, even though all this, all that stuff was happening there?
1: A a little bit. There was a few years where we didn't go back at all. Um, but I remember maybe a year after we moved to, to Utah, we'd, we'd, we'd go back and, um, and then a couple of years we did it. And then we started just going back every single summer. And it, it was really stressful, to be honest, just getting into the country, having a, a father who was affiliated with a government that was overthrown and, you know, mm-hmm. f- having people kind of sneak us through customs so they didn't realize that we were affiliated with my dad. And a, a lot of Sudanese kids, expats, you know, third culture kids like me have dealt with the same similar story, you know, figuring out how to get into the country and see their family without uh, letting people know that their family was affiliated with the democracy. So, Oh my um, gosh,
0: that must've been so scary. Right. I mean, you're like, what if somebody knows we get in, we're with our family. And then what if, you know, somebody rats us? I don't know. That would be, I think
1: stressful. I think it was, I think it was a lot more romantic to me as a kid than, than it was scary. And as an adult now, I realize we would have been fine. We would have been totally fine. You know, like you're kind of like a needle in a haystack. So then there's a very big country. There's a lot of people there and like randomly plucking out my family out of obscurity to like, you know, to do something would have been, would have been pretty insane to, yeah. to for us to be that those people. And then, you know, halfway through that process of doing all that stuff, my family gained citizenship in the United States. So that became just really easy to come in and out as a, as a U.S. citizen. But prior we were, we were, um, we just held residency and we didn't have, uh, we only had Sudanese passports and and U.S. residency. So that, that's the only stressful part about it. You know, it became a little more uh, difficult. Yeah, yeah, it was difficult in that place. But, you know, as like a 10, 10 to, you know, 17 year old kid, you know, being able to say to your friends like, oh yeah, my family snuck into, into Sudan pretty like <laughs> yeah, that. Was, cool. <laughs> that was really fun to to you know to give him that anecdote. Sure.
0: Uh you you said your dad was studying at uh, in Boston and mm-hmm. were you was your whole family in Boston while he was studying there or was he just abroad and you were still in Sudan when that was happening?
1: We we were all there with him. He came okay. a little, he came a little earlier and uh like maybe like 6 months prior to when we came. I I mean I very vividly remember coming into the airport him picking us up and um every day li- living in this like really tiny apartment near boston university near the giant go sign and um walking to mcdonald's for for dinner sometimes and trying seven up for the first time you know like really <laughs> american culture you know it was a lot of fun as a
0: as a kid sure and you were in boston you, you said you were in utah as well Mm-hmm. Um, I did read, uh, I mean, Wikipedia slapped me in the face, uh, hundreds of times, uh, but it mentioned Ohio that my family's originally from Ohio. I wasn't born there. Mm. I like was, my mom was nine months pregnant with me when my family moved to San Diego. Oh, uh, okay. so I missed it by like this much. But, uh, did you spend some time in Ohio as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ohio was like my formative years. I moved there when I was 13. Okay. So we, we moved to Kent, Ohio. That's where my oh really my cousin went to Kent State yeah so <laughs> uh, it, the the timeline is like this we we lived in Boston my dad graduated from school he uh, we, we we had we were we weren't able to go back to Sudan so we had to figure out what to do with our family and mm-hmm. um, he had a friend of his who said why don't you come to Utah and you know get you into the university here and so he decided to do his PhD. At Brigham Young University, of all places, wow! <laughs> in the entire world, for a, a Sudanese Muslim family to go to <laughs> so, a Mormon school, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he went back to school. My mom got her master's there, and um, wow. Uh, uh, then he, you know, got a job in Northeast Ohio teaching at a, a college, and we moved to Kent. I was thirteen, um, and yeah, I, that's where I would say I really grew up. in in Kent you know I went to high school there and I went to Ohio State for for university oh did you really yeah that's awesome
0: my um, my uncle went to Ohio State as well and uh, I went to a football game there
1: one time with him it was the most
0: insane experience I've ever had in my life it was so wild
1: (laughs) yeah we uh in Kent or in Columbus we called there's like a the street called high street where everything is right, right next to campus and the numbered streets there are like from like the thirteenth to like maybe ninth street, they call the tear gas district because that's where all like the frat houses and the park oh, sure. and the animal houses are, and um my freshman year, Ohio State beat uh my Miami for the national championship, and after the Michigan game was that o we two were... or yeah.
0: no that would have been late. was that o two
1: yeah, oh wow, and uh after the Michigan game the parties were so intense that there were celebratory riots all up and down high street and like people throwing burned couches onto the street and flipping cars oh and stuff, like, looting stuff. And we, we'd come back, um come back from, from Christmas break. And there'd be cops coming into like our dorms and knocking on these these uh, kids dorm rooms and sh- having pictures and be like, is this you? Is this you flipping this car? And they'd expel them right away. That happened like to three kids on my, on my floor. Oh, wow. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I went to one game there
0: and there's like that varsity, I think it's called the varsity club. Yep, yeah. Varsity varsity club, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember like I'd never been to, a, I, I went to a bunch of Browns games growing up. Uh, Cause we'd come back every year to visit my dad's family. And uh, you'd go to those. I went to that one Ohio state game there's no one, there's a whole 120,000 people are in so stadium is crazy. Yep. Not one person in the whole thing was wearing the other team's Jersey, which I'd never seen. Mm-hmm. And then you go to that varsity club and it's just like, everything's in a can. So people are just throwing the cans on the ground. It was so <laughs> crazy. I'm like, this is yeah. the most wild experience. <laughs>
1: it it was wild. It was scary. You know, like the at times, you know, especially yeah. after the Michigan games, you know, not, nothing was as like intense as my freshman year, but um, maybe that's just because you just kind of get desensitized to how intense like the tailgating is. You know, I, I remember oh, driving man. to work and, you know, driving down a street that usually takes me 10 minutes to drive to get to work. It took me an hour on a game day one day, you know.
0: Jeez. Yeah, that is so bad. crazy. Um, yeah. Well, to, to, to back up a little bit here, because um, I'm curious about your, having two parents that have you know, advanced degrees, but how did you get into
1: music? You know, it was always, it was always in me. But a lot of my extended family, like my grandparents on both of my uh, uh, parents' side, were pretty creative and musical. My grandfather, on my mom's side, my um, her father was a pretty well respected, like Muslim cleric in Sudan. He has he has a mosque named after him and was was known as al-Khalifa which is like kind of like a very regal term for a high standing like sufi muslim he's a sufi um and he you know after the sixth grade he he just committed himself to islam and went to a madrasa and like studied under these these um uh, mentors you know and just kind of became this very well known person in the community and he in in sufi culture in in, in a specifically african sufi culture you have these things called the al-mawlid which is a celebration of the the birth of the prophet muhammad and um your sect your sufi sect get together and you do this really beautiful and wonderful celebration where there's um there's a lot of pomp and circumstance you know like uh, uh these young kids uh enter the the congregation with drums and uh people kind of stand facing each other nodding back and forth and doing this call and response uh a uh, prayer kind of thing and then my grandfather and two or three other uh, high standing sufis would would recite these uh religious stories in song essentially in song you know you, you wouldn't wow. call it, you wouldn't call it song um as a as a muslim because it it's it's not you're not singing you know but you're but it sounds like that um and as a kid i remember being at these moulids and just being so captivated by his voice and how he was reciting these really beautiful stories. I mean, uh, uh, the Quran is written in poetry, so it's like just really flowery and beautiful words of it kind of explaining things. And he just had this really wonderful voice. And I would have these like tantric kind of -of out-of-body experiences watching and listening to these recitations. Um, And sometimes just... I thought I was seeing stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And that was like my first real entrance into understanding music, really, you know, as like a three to six year old kid listening and hearing my grandfather do this kind of stuff. And it passed down to my mom. My mom sings a lot. She played guitar. My um my grandmother on my mom, on my dad's side, was a poet. And um a, a lot of my family sings a lot. So it it was kind of in you know, genetically inherited. Mm-hmm. you know, in that way, but no one really ever did anything with it in the same way that I did. I think I was the, the one person who just could, you know, who just, who just went, went for it. And I remember, you know, being 11 years old and going to a music store and sitting down on the drums and thinking, this is what I want to do. This is my purpose. You know, I played my first show a year later and wow. really as did, a drummer, that's where you yeah. started. Okay. Yeah, and I just never really looked back and became so incredibly obsessed with music and understanding music and seeing all of my, you know, all of my favorite bands growing up. I mean, every weekend I was in Cleveland seeing a concert throughout high school until I graduated high school, literally every single weekend. Wow. You know, it was my escape from everything. And I, I recently went back to music school and got a master's in composition and no way. Yeah. And it's just, I'm just, I'm one of those guys. I'm really, really obsessed with all of that kind of stuff. And I just can't really stop thinking about it.
0: That's incredible. And with uh, like, what bands were you going to see in Cleveland? Like, what were you listening to at the time?
1: I was a, such an indie rock dork, I think. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I can, I, I probably saw every single indie rock band that toured through Cleveland between 1998 and 2004 Wow. Until yeah, we're the moment. same
0: age. I was just going off of what you just said as far as when you were born. So like yeah, I, I'm sure the same bands came to San Diego and that's what I, I was into as well, like indie bands and
1: stuff. And I there was a really big punk and hardcore scene in Ohio and mm-hmm. I was a, I was a part of that. So a lot of like in Kent there was this really amazing label called Donut Friends Records that um uh was run by this guy named Jamie Stillman who was in a band called The Party Helicopters and Harriet the Spy. And those were our bands. That was like the the first time I ever got to see a person that released music as close to me as, you know, my friends playing music that just blew my mind. And it was like, oh, I can do this. You know, this guy's showing me that I can do this. And he he would bring so many different bands through. Um, and that, that was really great on that kind of level. And then uh, I was a really, really big fan of um, Death Cab for Cutie and Radiohead mm-hmm. and um uh, Spiritualized and like, you know, that kind of stuff back in, back in, uh you know, back when I was like a teenager. So uh-huh. any, any opportunity to go to the, the Beachland ballroom or grog shop or, you know, speak in tongues back in the day, you know, like mm-hmm. all of, the, all of those places I was seeing any band. Wow.
0: And you you said you were in a band like pretty quickly after you said within what a year of learning drums. What, what was were, like what style of music were you all playing? That
1: was in Utah. So it was. Oh, wow. That was even before you got to Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. That was. Or, um, um, Kent. Yeah. I think the show was like. The show was. Oh, I think my was in the beginning of seventh grade or something. Um, and that band was. I remember I remember what, what, our guitar player was obsessed with Pearl Jam and like it was like you know MTV from 1996 like with Red Hot Chili Peppers and Oasis I think Oasis yeah. was my first favorite band of all time I love Oasis like yeah.
0: Oh, smashing pumpkin I remember waiting smashing for that w- like, 1979 video to come on and like sitting for 3 hours and sometimes you wouldn't even see it I was like damn S- was that smashing in the pumpkin at the
1: time <laughs> that was my first show that I ever really watched. My first wow. concert with Smashing Pumpkins at the Delta Center and in, um, in in Salt Lake City. And so it was a lot of that, like, you know, alternative, you know, it's a first band kind of thing. We did a lot mm-hmm. of covers. We covered like Green Day and Red Hot Chili Peppers and stuff like that. But when I moved to Kent, that was the first time I really was in a band that I was like, all right, this is our identity, you know? Mm-hmm. And, it was, and it was very much influenced by indie rock, like specifically like Hum. Oh, I yeah, love like, Hum, and yeah. Stars, what
0: a great song. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's
1: Godspeed, Black Emperor, and, like, oh. Death Cab from that era way back in the day, and Sigur Rós, Radiohead, like, all of that, all that kind of, like, indie rock with lots of uh, sparkly sounds, you know?
0: <laughs> sure. And how long did you do that band? Like, eventually, I mean, you go to Ohio State, which Columbus is a couple hours at least probably away from Kent. Um yeah. So did you... Like when you ended up going to Ohio State, were you pursuing music still? Or oh I mean, yeah, having yeah. two parents and with advanced degrees, were they
1: like supportive of uh, the music thing you were trying to pursue? They they weren't until they were, you know. Okay. <laughs> but when I moved to Columbus, yeah, I, I you know what you know what it is like. Uh, so people that that come from my situation, like specifically East African, I mean, a lot of people who are who who are come from expat families but i can only speak for east african although i've related to a lot of kids who are not east african but grew up you know in america but not being from america yeah there's a lot of pressure because i'll speak for myself my parents were like you know we we brought you to this country to give you a lot of opportunity and you have you could literally get a degree and become a lawyer and make more money than you we could have ever imagined you know right which which is fair that's totally fair um, so I be being competitive. I was like, well, I'll show you what kind of opportunity exists here. And I'm going to do music and I'm going to do exactly the same thing as you said, but it's going to be through music. Cause you know, you can't really do it in the same way in Sudan. Um, so the, but they, but they also thought like, okay, this is a fad. He's going to outgrow this. He's going to go to college and like, you know, get a degree and get yeah, married. Get it and, nine to five and do the yeah. deal. And I went to college and I connected with some, friends who are also from kent and i i joined the first serious band i was ever in Who we actually released our like long lost album yesterday 20 almost 25 years did uh, you really oh yeah. wow i didn't even realize that that's yeah, amazing our, our friend justin uh, with this label, label called expat works expert expert works he released he released the records and um it was for the band
0: called called sweetheart Sweetheart, okay, cool. Yeah, I to check that
1: out. And and so yeah, so yeah, I joined Sweetheart. We we became a thing. It was this h- hardcore band. It was a a very amazing, cathartic, and wonderful time in my life, in all of our lives. And it was the first time I went on tour. Uh, Brian Parker, guitar player, he taught me literally everything. He taught me how to tour, how to book a tour, how to you know uh, be a part of a, a a bigger musical community, like in Columbus, because he was a pretty upstanding person in the, in the musical community there um he he taught me how to just be in a band you know and um for four years we toured every time every moment that we didn't we didn't have school we were on tour weekends br- uh holiday breaks uh made a lot of friends along the way and brought a lot of bands to columbus as well and um th- that really solidified you know, what I wanted to do with my life. You know, the moment we started going on tour, like this is exactly what I want to do. Um, and after that band disbanded is when I started Syncane.
0: Okay. Okay. And I have just based again off of the, the research I've done on you, I mean, you've worked with a ton of artists. You were like, what, session musician for a yeah. bunch of, I mean, Yaser and, and a bunch of bands. Like, was that all just based off, like, I mean, doing your own thing with Syncane, were you also working along with other people like was it just connections you made or like how did this project kind of coincide with everything else that looks like you've done in your your career sure yeah um
1: so at every single show that i went to starting from maybe when i was 14 Mm -hmm. i always brought a demo of my band's music with me and i wouldn't leave smart (laughs) yeah I i wouldn't leave the show until i gave it to you know, one of the bandmates in the band that I love, like my my favorite band, I think probably around that time was Sunny Day Real Estate. You know, and I oh man, Diary, what a yeah, the one of and, the best albums I've ever written. And I I remember, I remember like making my friend Samer wait as long as possible until Jeremy Ennick and Dan Horner walked off stage and or walked from backstage to come sign my set list give him a record, like just, wow. the, that, that's that's what I would do. I, I, I was relentless. And um, uh, in 2007, I went and saw Caribou play, who was at that time, that was my favorite band. Um, and I, I did the same thing. I, I went straight to Dan after the show and I gave him my Sincane record. It was like a CDR. I still hadn't even released it properly or found the label or anything. And I spilled my guts to him. I told him how much I loved his music and how important it was for me to like, start my project and and he was so nice uh and responded to me a couple months later saying he liked it and um from that moment he he was like let me know you know if you ever want to come see us play and i asked him if we could support them for a show in in columbus and he said yes and so i i just like quit my job and got my band on tour and i was like we're gonna get ready we're gonna have this really amazing this is my moment you know kind of thing yeah I mean to get
0: that validation from the band that you you love your favorite band. I mean that's so like, you know, rare, right?
1: That I mean it was it was crazy and the tour didn't go well. I had to go back home after a day because the van died and blew up and you know and so I didn't have a job and I was uh a week away from the show and I was trying to figure out what to do and I went I went um I woke up one morning going to a job interview and before the job interview, I checked my email and there was an email from Dan and he said their drummer broke his, his wrist and they needed a replacement and they were looking for people. And I wrote him back and I said, I'll do it. And as I'm driving to the job interview, he called me and he said, Hey, we need you in North Carolina tonight. It would be great to have you join us. And that happened. And I had to put Sincane on the burn, the back burner, um, I thought for maybe like a couple months and it ended up being like four years. And then that, 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 that opportunity, like opened me up to playing with every single band that I played with, you know, I played with, it was April 1st, 2008 in North Carolina. The next day we played in Athens, Georgia. And I met of Montreal there. They asked me to join the band. Wow. So I And then like a, a few months later or a, a few weeks later, we, a caribou we toured with this band born ruffians uh-huh. i met them there um and so after the montreal gig finished born ruffians asked me to play for them and so i went on tour with them um and by then i had i had lived in new new york um actually no sorry uh on the tour with born ruffians i met yesair at a uh all this this the these old uh festivals called all tomorrow's parties we they did this like pitchfork pitchfork uh a uh, curated one. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of those bands that you, are all like kind of that in that pitchfork
0: scene, exactly. right?
1: Now. Yeah, and uh, Yesair was at that Dirty Projectors, all these people that I ended up becoming friends with afterwards. And Yesair were there and Onand and Ira, I ended up hanging out with them all night at that show. And when I moved to New York, they were like, "Hey, you know, we would love to play with you." And I was on tour with Born Ruffians and that tour ended and I played with Yesair for the next 3 years of my life and after that happened, after those, like, you know, from one band to another, I, there was a kind of a fork in the road where I, it was w- w- it was either I was going to be a sideman forever, or I was going to actually start pursuing Sin Cane again. And um, Dan was generous enough to pass my record to City Sling Records where, that releases his music in Europe, and they liked it and they wanted to work with me. And so I decided to, to pursue Sin Cane at that point. Wow.
0: And was it, I mean, playing uh, as a drummer, it sounds like you drummed for all of these bands, right? I mean, Sinkane was a totally, not only a totally different sound than, what those bands sounds like at least with the newest stuff I'm hearing from you. Mm-hmm. um, Was it, I mean, writing your own songs and, and you play everything on the Sinkane things as far as like vo- vocals, all that stuff. And was that different to kind of take that role as opposed to, being kind of the drummer throughout, like a lot of those those bands.
1: Well, I would say Yessir was kind of the bridge, because okay. I didn't, I didn't really play drums in Yessir. I played keys and a little. Oh, okay. Um, I was gonna play drums, but then this guy Jason Trammell came through, and his audition just he he got the he got the gig as a drummer, and they told me they want they wanted me to try to do something else. And Jason, you know, is a really dear friend of mine, and he played in Sincane for a very long time as well. So we we became really great, great friends through that. Um, but uh, yeah, I didn't I I barely played. I didn't even sit down on a drum kit with with Yesir. And okay. that that made the transition to Sincane pretty easy. But, you know, prior prior to any of those bands, when I was doing Sincane shows, you know, in like 2004 2000, or sorry, 2005, 2006, um, it was me, either just me on a guitar or me leading a, a band playing guitar.
0: Okay. So you kind of yeah, had your feet wet at least. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to go from drumming to now I'm the center focus of of this project that I'm I have going on.
1: Yeah, I mean it was hard. To, don't get me wrong. I mean, I th- it's one thing playing playing guitar in a band in a basement, you know, to your friends or to like maybe 30 people or something. But when you, you know, get into like actually doing it you know, all over the world. You get thrown yeah. into these situations all over the world. It's it's it gets you getting used to. Some people really thrive in that situation. And I did as a drummer and I did it as like a, a session guy, but it took me a second to understand what it meant to be like a, a front person. Mm-hmm. And at what point like what was kind
0: of was there an early like milestone that you had hit and when you're like, wow, okay, this is really working out for me. This is doing I'm doing as a front was man- there, I'm i so, I'm sorry as
1: a frontman, yeah yeah with sin Kane. um it, i think it took the second album or the second album on on a dfa and, and city slang mean love okay. um that halfway through that tour something clicked i think we we toured a lot during that album and also uh i i md'd the atomic bomb band which is uh the band that was a tribute to William Anubor. So that was a really, really intense undertaking having to wrangle that many musicians and that many
0: stars, right? I mean, having Damon Alborn around and David Byrne. I mean uh yeah the guy from Hot Chip. It's just like I'm looking at the Beastie Boys. I mean you look at the people
1: that were in that it's like it was wild. And it was a lot of fun. But it was it was a big it was a big job and i you know p- playing those shows to that many people you know like our first show was a sold out show at the barbican in the uk that was a that's a pretty big deal and <laughs> like just being in front of that kind of energy um leading music that sounds like that it's it's like energetic you like you you just can't really not get up and move and like you know, get outside of yourself in that way. Like if you have any jitters or any weirdness uh, and you get presented a, a situation like that and thrown into a situation like that, all you, you know, they that just goes out the window. At least for me, it did. And mm-hmm. doubling up on Sinkane tours and uh, Atomic, Bion- Atomic Bomb tours and sometimes playing two sets at the same festival, one with Sinkane and one with Atomic Bomb, it really just kind of threw me into just okay, this is what I got to do. It's fight or flight. Let's go, you know? And um, we did this tour with Hot Chip at the time. And I remember walking into that tour and just like getting on stage for the first show and just all of a sudden something clicked. It just, it flipped. It became easier. It became really natural. Like the synergy between all of us on stage was really great and just connected. It was pretty great. Yeah. Um, And then
0: you ended up with, It was a couple few albums later with Life and Living. I mean, that one took you like national television. I mean, you got on Mm -hmm. Conan and all that. That was that. I mean, that must have been a pretty huge moment as well. Like, okay, this record's doing awesome as well. Um, Now I'm getting television appearances. Like, at what point are your parents like, okay, we're you know we see this happening? Was it now he's on TV or is it before
1: that? It was it was the first time I was on TV. So in (laughs) in 2000. what was it 2008 is right when i'm actually this is the reason why i moved to new york i was playing with montreal and we got we got uh the the letterman gig oh wow and and it it was on december 9th or december 19th 2008 and up to that point my mom still on the phone was like what are you doing what are you doing with your life like i don't care that you're making money you know this is weird and You know, I I won't get into the details, but it was, it was a, it was parents don't understand. My parents
0: still don't understand what I do. And I was like on Threshold Radio for over a decade, but it doesn't matter.
1: (laughs) And, and they, I remember being on the phone with her and, and she was asking me like, what's going on, you know? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I'm finishing up this tour. We're playing on David Letterman. And she just got silent and was like, really, really? And that was it. After that, she started bragging about me all of a sudden. Oh sure, calling all (laughs) friends like my son's gonna be on Letterman tonight. Make sure you check it out. (laughs) It was awesome. I mean, like, come on, you know, it was. I got to meet Will Smith that day. It was great. (laughs) Damn. Yeah.
0: And then you did it with your own band, right? I mean, your own project with Conan. I mean, that's so wild.
1: You know, Conan was great, but I'll I'll say this: we did Tiny Desk, and that was very special. Oh my gosh, that was like. just a wonderful experience to be able to you know re redo your songs for that space and you know it's like you you, it, it, it there's no there's no like magic or secret or like you know special thing that that you like on tv you can you play on tv and afterwards you go back to the 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 uh, production people and they can like change things to make it sound perfect oh, okay. you know on on tiny desk you it's just like you're like free balling you know it's just live right you do like five songs yeah you do like three to three to five songs yeah. there's no amps you're you're completely like naked in front of everyone doing what you do you know that you can't tune your vocals you can't like do any of that kind of stuff so that, i think that's why like things like t-pain's uh tiny desk is so like wonderful because you're really seeing him for who he is and he like everyone thought he was just like this autotune guy but he has a great voice and it's just him and a piano and that's it and yeah it, i just it,
0: had this conversation with somebody recently actually they're like using autotune on their new record like a little bit i can't remember who it was but and you know i was like you know Auto-Tune, works if you can act like if people know you can actually sing and i said and i use the example of t-pain because people just assume that he has that one sound with the with the uh you know the autotune but the guy is insanely good at singing oh
1: my goodness i mean his his uh black sabbath cover is insane <laughs> yeah it's a you know? race you hear him on certain records and you're like okay he's got this autotune thing and then
0: you you, you hear it without the autotune it's like damn this guy it's
1: insane yeah and i I don't know bob boylan he was he's such a legend you know such an amazing supporter of music and just to provide that platform for for musicians to like come in and really show you what their songs are about you that's what you really see like uh, one person in a piano or everyone stripping down their instruments to like showcase the beauty of the of the music and that was really really special amazing well,
0: I want to talk to you about the the new album you have coming out, and I, I've heard a couple of the the songs from the record. Uh, everything is everything, and then how sweet is your love? When did you start working on this? And kind of tell me about the you know the story behind the album.
1: Sure, yeah, I, I started working on it. Um, I think it was right before the pandemic. I, I think oh, okay. it was November of 2019 was when I first started really writing. I came back from the last Sin tour for the album to pay and it was a pretty depressing that that whole album cycle was not fun. N- no one in the band was getting along and, you know, it was nobody's fault. Really. It's just, it, everyone was miserable. The album didn't really do as well as the previous one. And, um, by, uh, by all, I don't know. I, I, it just didn't, it was different, you know, and, mm-hmm. I came back home and I decided to just kind of throw myself into writing music again to see if I would make me feel better about stuff. And it did for a while. Um, And then the pandemic hit and that was amazing for me. I, and my wife as well, we really slowed down. I took a lot of time off. Um, and I decided I wanted to go to music school. I wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to be touring for a while and I, applied for this program at SUNY Purchase here in New York and I got it in and spent two years really just wonderful two years of like uh, re relearning my relationship with music understanding the science of music taking as many classes as I possibly could just really going in and um uh, one of the one of the amazing things about that program is once a week you meet with your private study advisor and you talk about what you want to you know, what you want your, your, um, your senior, your, your junior and your senior projects to be. Mm-hmm. And it's, you have to kind of create music for that. And so I would bring in my favorite music to analyze. And then we would, we would, uh, create these like, um, assignments to like, to, uh, use the tools that these musicians and, were using or, or kind of break down the, the theory of what they were doing and then kind of, uh, give me homework to like apply that to something new that i was working on and that's pretty much how the record started getting like some sort of steam. Oh, you know? interesting.
0: So it's totally a different approach for this. I mean, to oh, go completely. in and bring your influences or the, the songs you like and really break them down and be able to utilize some of that you know, apply some of that to your own songs. I mean, sure exactly. that changed sound quite a bit or changed your perspective on it.
1: Yeah, it was, it was so inspiring, you know, I, I, you know, bring like Herbie Hancock tunes or David Bowie tunes, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, Jill was a really big one for me too. And, and, and really understand what they were doing with their music. And, and it made me feel so much more connected to music because it, 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 it was no longer this like, Oh my goodness, this is all this so magical. I don't understand. I can't even begin to fathom how, mm-hmm these people are doing it, it turned into like, Oh, they're speaking a language and now I'm learning this language and now I can communicate with them directly or indirectly, consciously, subconsciously, because I understand what, what they're saying, literally what they're saying musically. Um, and so every, every week this would happen for two years. Um, and it, it really got me really into the, uh, the process of writing the songs and understanding how I could get these ideas that I've always had in my head, uh, into song form finally in a way that like made sense for me uh, and then I think it was maybe the 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 last semester of school uh, where it really kicked into high gear uh, I was starting to send out my demos to my friends that I usually work with my collaborators Greg LaFaro who I've worked with for a long time and Amanda Keery who um, was in the band for a while and kind of had this weird falling out but you know rekindled our friendship and you know through working on this album honestly became even closer friends which was great you know i'd send her these songs and ask her what she thought about them and she would have an opinion and it just kind of turned into this like really natural uh routine of just working together you know and she's an amazing lyricist i always like working with other lyricists on my music and You know, she. I would send her a song by dinner time, and wake up the next morning, and she had had a lot of ideas for me, and I'd implement them, and then we'd start talking to each other back and forth, and you know, um, uh, create what the song was about. You know, what what we were trying to say. Same thing with Asia Grant, uh, Casey Benjamin, uh, Money Mark from the BC Boys, who uh, I worked with uh, on Ebor. I would just send them these this music and be like, "Do you have an opinion on this?" And Money Mark, in particular, I would say what did you guys use to record the synthesizer in this Beck tune or like what did the BC boy was used to like get this sound? And he's just like an encyclopedia for gear and, you know, production techniques. And he would always have something to say. And, you know, one time he was in town and I was like, come to the studio, let's jam. And we did. And I was like, this is really fun. Let's, let's continue doing this. I'm going to send you all my music. You can help me produce this record. And, you know, it just was super organic in that way. Um, And it really moved, the needle forward um wow. and then I, th- I think the final piece was i put together a new band and oh, uh, in the studio or with just as like a touring
0: like on stage live
1: as a touring band because we we needed to make up some covid dates and i like the old band just did you know it it just uh ended you know um, it seemed
0: like you had stuff going on before you know before COVID yeah or whatever and,
1: I'm very grateful for, for, for everything that I did with everyone in the past. And a lot of those guys now are doing some really amazing stuff and I'm really, really, really happy and proud of our uh, musical relationships, you know, and it's, it's all great. Um, but I, I saw this band called Holy Hand Grenade in New York who are now called Tiger Tiger and they they were playing oh, a show. Tiger. Wow. Yeah. They were playing a show and just covering these like Mulato Estatica and Herbie Hancock songs. And I was like, wow, this is insane. This is really, really good, you know, like Fela tunes. And it was, it sounded modern, but not really. And just in this way that I kind of a, a, a pro, approach music and want to hear music. And um, I just walked up to them and I was like, you guys want to play with me? You want to be my band? And they, they took it on and we started playing together and it was like instant connection uh, especially with uh, Dave Palazzola and Ronnie of the, the the bassist and drummer, we just really connected right away. And so I had them, once we went to the studio, I brought them into the studio. They play on every single song. Um, and and uh, I needed some singers for the live band. And that's how I met, through Eli Paperboy Reed, I met uh Ife And Ife Dayo, uh they they suggested to bring up a, a friend of theirs, uh, Jessica Harp and started playing with the two of them live and brought them into the studio. And they, they're, all, they're doing all of the background singing in the studio. Um, and through just some other people I met Stout and uh, True Osborne and uh, Casey Benjamin has been a person that I've worked with for a long time, and just kind of brought him along, and he brought a bunch of his buddies too. So it was this really wonderful like snowball effect of like, let me reach out to this person and add on to this person, and, just, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh wow, this is like a, a community of musicians that are in the studio with me. It's really wonderful.
0: That is that is so amazing. Um, you mentioned. I just want to back up for half a second here. You mentioned. You know, bringing songs in or artists in to this, you know, one on one thing that you had for your class or for your your education, uh, would you bring in a new band or new song every single week and kind of pick from those? Or was it like, okay, today I'm going to bring in Bowie and you kind of break down a handful of Bowie songs
1: or like, how did how did that work? So uh, the Bowie one is a good example, actually, because that was the, the first big one for me. Um, I brought in Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie. And I I love that song. It has, if you're like a non-musical person, if you don't know much about theory or anything, that song just sounds like magic. There's like all of these yeah. twists and turns and weird stuff. And like, you know, it starts in one place and ends in a completely different place, you know. And I wanted to analyze the song. Like a, a, lot of, a lot of my other classes that I was taking was with uh, musical analysis, you know, like uh, analyzing Bach chorales or Chopin or something like that. So we applied the same techniques of analyzing the music to like old classical Bach chorales to a David Bowie tune and tried to understand what kind of musical theory tools he was implementing to create this music, you know? And so we came up with, we came up with understanding one, one in particular that was really cool. And so my advisor was like, all right, so let's make a formula of this, of this, uh, tool that he's using of this like musical phrase so that it's like, you're really just extracting the DNA of the song and creating a formula of it. And then now you implement this formula into a song, you know, mm-hmm. and that that was really fun. That was really like, that's the way my brain works. It's so cerebral. Um, and you can, you understand that like these things that some people might call just like soul or magic. It's, it's really not like it's, these people actually thought very thoughtfully about how to make this sound this way. Um, and so that technique I utilized on a song that actually isn't on the album. It's called Say Less. It's a, it's a uh, outtake, you know? Um, and I, I, I did the same thing with uh, the song Rise Above. The The whole second section, the back end of it, that sounds like a like weird Herbie Hancock tune. I, I analyzed a bunch of Herbie songs, you know, and understood what kind of, what kind of musical movements he was doing and to make it sound the way that he's using, what kind of extensions he was using and all of that kind of stuff to like, to kind of create this song that kind of sounds like a, you know, 1970s quiet storm Herbie Hancock spiritual jazz thing, you know? Um, and it was, it was great. You know, it was so much fun. It's like, Oh wow, this is how this sounds when I use these, these uh, tools, you
0: know? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I was wild to think, I was just thinking about this right now is like, you know, a, a artist like David Bowie, you sometimes they don't get enough credit. It's just like, Oh, this guy's a genius. And he goes in and just thinks of these lyrics and this melody and puts this song down. But like, if you really break down what they are doing, it's just, I'm sure it's gotta be like, like, Oh my gosh. Right. I mean, yeah. it's more than, some lyrics and a melody and a guitar.
1: I'll 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 give you another example. The song We Belong was is pretty inspired heavily inspired by D'Angelo and also Justin Timberlake's song Señorita. Okay. And re- analyzing Señorita was really interesting for me because uh, essentially that Rhodes part that like runs through the verses and mm-hmm. the chorus is is this incredibly dissonant musical cluster it's just like notes that if you play them next to each other on their own are shrill to your ears they don't make sense at all but the way that they the way that they're uh, laid out and the way that they're performed it sounds very musical you know Mm -hmm. so understanding what those intervals were between the notes and how they were um collected and and uh, um and and performed you know to make it sound musical was really interesting for me um, D'Angelo does a lot of that with his like his take on jazz, and jazz is all about dissonance, you know, and and yeah. um making things that seemingly don't, you know, it's it's very intellectual and very like uh you know cerebral in the way that it, it it works, um, and you realize that all of these things work together and they kind of resolve into each other in this interesting way once you know musical theory. It all just kind of resolves into something that allows your brain to understand it as like either interesting or uh, as home, you know? know. Um, and in understanding all of that, I was able to write that song, you know? Wow. Um, and if you go back and listen to Señorita and you go back and listen to like Voodoo, you'll be like, oh, okay, I can kind of see like where he was coming from it's a it's a bit of a simplified version of what they were doing but uh, especially senorita that's just like a
0: bizarre i have to go listen to that now because it just you just hear it as like a pop song right you don't really think about the how you know yeah big, the, the, good it is the, when you break it
1: down that roads part is just it's pretty intense i mean you know, if you isolated <laughs> it you listen to it you're like wow wow these are like these notes it just sounds like someone's like bashing on a on a are you like a cat walking around walking through a can <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh that's so funny wow yeah. yeah well um i like i said i the songs you have out thus far for this record are awesome the whole album comes out in april i believe april 5th yep and then you're doing a you know a bunch of shows around what may right after the album comes out
1: yeah, yeah. i'm going on a solo tour actually right after the album or before the album comes out right after south by southwest uh, we're gonna do South by Southwest and then we're gonna go um I'm gonna go on my own and just kinda do a solo tour with this with Black Violin, which I'm pretty excited about. Oh cool. Uh, and, what when yeah. when
0: does that start? I don't know if I saw those dates. I just saw the ones like at a ballroom and uh you're playing independent San Francisco and
1: Yep, yeah, th- that's that's uh, later. Um the black violin tour starts oh, let me see here. Starts on the eighteenth, March 18th. Or March nineteenth, sorry, March nineteenth. Had. And then our album release show is may 3rd at bowery ballroom and that's with the band everything else beyond that will be with the band we go yeah. to europe for a second the uk uh and then we do a u.s tour that starts around memorial day awesome are you
0: playing nashville on that first leg no not nashville not yet yeah, yeah. they'll
1: probably be in the in the fall
0: cool well that's where i'm at now so i want to come check you. you know. live there yeah, yeah, yeah so
1: i was just there really yeah, I was just there because I'm I'm um working producing these two gospel records for Luwakabop, and um we did some work. My my friend who actually recorded uh, Mean Love, he he lives there, and I was working with him. And uh, my sister in law actually used to live there and work at Locust, so we'd come down and eat at Locust. Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> yeah. Right on. We well, that, that is
0: so cool, dude. Well, um I appreciate you doing this thanks for rescheduling this is so fun to to chat with you uh, i can't wait for the record to come out and i have uh, one more question for you uh, mm-hmm. i want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists
1: any advice for aspiring artists yes if this is what if this is what you want to do put 900% of your time and effort into doing it there is a space for you in the wide spectrum of music And there is someone out there, a few people out there, maybe more than a few people out there who need to hear what you are doing. Your voice is important and you should completely go for it.